From the American Foreign Policy Council in Washington, D.C., I'm Michael Sobolik, fellow in Indo-Pacific Studies, and you're listening to Great Power Podcast. It's an inside look into a world increasingly defined by great powers like the United States and China and others like Russia. It's a forum where national security experts explore how these adversaries threaten the U.S. And it's also a hub for crafting strategies to protect the American people. This is episode 29, a year-end review of America's China policy. Hello. Oh my gosh, it has been a long time since September 13th. Great to be speaking with each of you again, and happy Friday before the new year. So I mentioned this in the most recent episode from September. This podcast went on a hiatus because I was getting into parental leave. My wife, Chelsea, and I went over to India to finalize the adoption of our son, which was uh, successful. We're a family of three, and we had some unexpected delays in the process. We were expecting we would be there for, I don't know, 10 days, maybe 14 days. We ended up we ended up being in India a little over five weeks. So it was longer than we expected, but great time for our family to bond for us to get to know our son better, for him to get to know us, to begin to feel comfortable with us. And it was a special time. So I've been back in the office trying to catch up on everything over the past few weeks and had a few conversations, interviews planned for December. But December being December, plans changed, the holidays came, and uh, the podcast, which I was planning to relaunch this month, uh, that'll have to get pushed to the new year for the formal relaunch of Great Power Podcast. But um, I thought I'd just take some time uh, to share a few 2023 reflection thoughts about the state of China policy in Washington. Uh, I'm not going to make these solo episodes a habit. Uh I think the value of the show is a forum for conversation, not a forum for pontificating. And I say that knowing that I'm about to start pontificating about a few things, but um, I figure it's been a while and I don't want uh, more any more time than is necessary to go by without getting back in touch with, with uh, each of you. I'm really grateful to have the listeners who tune, in, tune into the show. Uh, it means a lot to me. It means a lot to AFPC. So uh, here's some thoughts that I've been mulling over looking back on the past year. I want to focus on three things. The first one being the spy balloon, which was the big, the first big China story of 2023. The second one being Taiwan, and then the final one being TikTok. There are plenty of other stories that are worth 
rehashing and tracking into 2024, the first one that comes to my mind is the state of our export licensing control regime and how porous or tight those regulations are, um, particularly when it comes to chips. And I think AI and the rigor of this fentanyl deal that the Biden administration brokered with Beijing, that's gonna, those are going to be important things to watch as well. Um, I think we need a, a little more grass to grow underneath that before we have a whole lot of value to say. But I think it's worth talking about the big stories of the past year that we've seen develop and you know can speak intelligently about. And the balloon certainly looms large, <laughs> pun intended, because this happened in or it occurred rather in late January uh, into early February. And if you recall, in December 2022, senior Biden administration officials were already teasing uh, an upcoming warmth uh, of, re- of re- the relationship with China. They were teasing a reset and they were saying, you're going to be surprised when you see really big things coming down the road. And then the balloon flew over U.S. airspace. And to my memory, could be wrong about this, but to my memory, the first outlet, major, like international outlet, to report on this, to get the story of why the administration didn't go public with the story immediately or didn't go public with it sooner was Bloomberg. And I remember this reporter was from, I think, February 4th. I can't remember that. I'll try to find it and put it in the show notes. But... Uh, Bloomberg got a story that the Biden administration was trying to keep the presence of the balloon over American airspace quiet because they didn't want to derail Secretary of State Antony Blinken's upcoming trip to China. And then, of course, a massive spy balloon flying over the country became a story because people looked up and saw it in the sky and they had to cancel Blinken's trip. But then I think the story is really important to track throughout the year, not so much because of what happened, but how the administration responded. Administration officials testified to Congress on February 9th that, quote, they were able to protect against PRC intelligence collection, which was straightforward because we knew where the balloon was, unquote. This was a story that was repeated by the White House communications director, John Kirby, and most recently by um, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley. At the time, he insisted that the U.S. was able to stop the intelligence collection of the balloon. He was the current chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So over the course of the year... A couple of journalists at NBC News have been getting the scoop on what actually happened with this balloon. Uh, Courtney Cube is one of them. I think Carol Lee is the other. Um, And they have pulled back the curtain uh, on what has actually been going on. And uh, their most recent story was from yesterday. Uh, Yesterday's story... Uh, said that the balloon was able to link up to a U.S. telecommunications network 
didn't say which network. They're withholding that information uh, to protect their sources. But some U.S. telecommunications network, the balloon was able to access it to then relay information, presumably back to China. Uh, And if you go back just a few days, uh, there was another story uh, that they got. It was, I think, the Friday before Christmas um, that the, the administration wasn't necessarily lying when they said that the balloon stopped transmitting information. They were being less than truthful about why the balloon stopped. The administration claimed repeatedly throughout this year that U.S. capabilities were able to prevent the balloon from collecting and relaying information to China. Um, according to uh, this report from NBC, the again, the Friday before Christmas, end of the year news dump, uh, this is from one of the, I think, opening paragraphs in the story, quote, after NBC broke the story of the balloon on February 2nd, Officials also arranged to brief other media outlets later that evening. Once the balloon's existence became public, U.S. officials said it stopped transmitting data. Officials also assessed that China's plan was to self-destruct the balloon, not return it back home. End of quote. So uh, that's not the same thing as the administration saying that they were able to stop it. Uh, according to this report from NBC, which, of course, this could, uh, if the administration wants to disprove it, uh, that's their prerogative if they have the evidence to do so. But the sources from uh, Carol Lee and Courtney Cube certainly suggest that the balloon stopped in response to its existence being made public, which presumably was a decision made not by China and not by the capabilities of the U.S. government. Um, And this also goes back to the middle of the year. I know we're skipping around here, but um, this has been a year-long story. And it's been one of the reasons it's been a year-long story is because the Biden administration keeps saying things uh, that then appear to not be so. June, mid-June, I think it was June 16th, it was not that long after President Biden called the spy balloon, quote-unquote, silly, something that was trumped up and didn't deserve all the attention it received. NBC News, same journalists, uh, in the middle of June reported, quote, a recently completed investigation of the balloon's debris found that Beijing's capabilities are far more sophisticated than the U.S. had believed. That was according to a current senior U.S. official and a former senior U.S. official. Their findings are significant, one of the officials said, better than we thought they were. Uh, This story matters not because this balloon uh, was a threat to the safety of Americans, uh, when an immediate threat to the safety of Americans. Um, the story matters, yes, because of the capabilities of the balloon, which are not insignificant. It matters, I think, because it was a, um, it revealed 
not just the preferences of the Biden administration to engage Beijing at great public relations cost, a.k.a. lying and deceiving Congress and the American people. Um, this is one example of, a, of the biggest theme of 2023, which is everyone talks a lot about how after COVID, America's China policy fundamentally shifted away from unmitigated engagement toward competition. That's partially true in that it's no longer unmitigated engagement and cooperation. But 2023, I think more than any other year post-COVID, has revealed that our China policy is decidedly mixed. And the instinct to continue to engage the Chinese Communist Party, partially in order in, in an ongoing attempt to try to change it, but also to because uh, administrations and some in Congress have policy priorities that don't put winning a new Cold War at the top of the list. Um, this is not a fundamental break or shift with the past. If you look at the reasons why the Biden administration were trying so hard to keep a diplomatic reset with China on track, part of it's climate change, yes, undoubtedly. That was a huge story from 2021 and 2022. Uh, I think it also uh, was part of the Ukraine war uh, and what I would call a misguided belief that we, that the Washington could try to peel China away from Russia or to try to mitigate China's support for Russia. And in order to do that, we had to play nice with China in a few different ways. So um, I think that the balloon is the slow leak or I guess a slow release if you want to <laughs> bring the balloon analogy a little further. Um, it, this is not a competitive stance of a great power that is intent on winning a Cold War against an adversary. And if you look at the other mitigation steps that the administration took to try to keep a reset with China on track, um, take a look at Mike Maza's story. Sorry. Take a look at Michael Martinez's story from, I think it was May, middle of May, about all of the policy measures that the Biden administration were putting on hold to make sure that Blinken's trip went through. They were delaying more export controls on Huawei. They were freezing additional sanctions on officials engaged in the Uyghur genocide, and they were covering up the FBI investigation about the balloon. Um, and then the State Department officials who were running advance for Blinken's trip arrived in Beijing on the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre. And the statement that the State Department put out was the weakest it's put out in years. Um, I don't mean for this to become a laundry list. I've admittedly a lot of my, uh, engagement on Twitter over the past year has been chronicling all of these 
sacrifices of competitive actions or delaying of competitive actions that the administration has taken. And uh, the intent is not to beat a dead horse. The intent is to, I think, shine a light on a story that often gets lost or misunderstood. We're leaving a lot of leverage and competitive advantage on the table with China right now. And the balloon, I think, is the most visible example of what that looks like. I don't know how many other stories about the balloon we're going to get in 2024. I don't know if there's more to the story that hasn't been revealed yet. There very well could be. Um, But the unfortunate reality is this stuff gets a lot of play in the China community, China policy space. But beyond that, people have moved on. They've forgotten about the balloon. And if you recall, in February, everyone was asking, is this America's big Sputnik moment with China? Meaning this is a visible representation that our greatest adversary is seeking intelligence collection on us in some of our most sensitive military sites. And sure, great powers collect intelligence on each other all the time. But this was a violation of our sovereign airspace, a a brazen (laughs) violation of our sovereign airspace. And the question was, is this going to be a Sputnik moment for America, not just for political elites, but for the American people? Is this where we suddenly internalize that we are in a zero-sum struggle? And I would venture to say the answer is no. Not just because of our reaction to the balloon, but I think Taiwan is another good example of this. So this has been, of course, it's an ongoing issue, but the part of Taiwan policy I want to focus on right now has been coming to a boil in the last few months of the year, in October, November, and December. We are approaching... A presidential election in Taiwan that will promise to be very important for cross-strait dynamics and for uh, Xi Jinping's calculation on what he wants to do about Taiwan. And it's been odd to see a flurry of articles from the what I would call the old guard in U.S.-China policy circles sounding the exact same note from October to now on Taiwan. And that note is that the United States needs to go out of its way to reassure China and to try to lower the temperature uh, and to lower uh, the pressure that uh, that is defined life in the Taiwan Strait over the past long time, but <laughs> over the past few years. And the narrative is as follows. Yes, China is upping its military exercises and it is violating Taiwan's, in some cases, maybe violating Taiwan's airspace and others crossing the median line between the strait uh, at a high rate of frequency, higher than ever before. And its military exercises on the sea surrounding Taiwan have encroached closer and closer to the main island. And all of that is true. But as the narrative goes, they are not just aggressors, they are reacting to the policies and the politics of Taiwan, but also the policies and the politics in the United States. And 
this constant refrain is there hasn't been an effort by U.S. policymakers to reassure the CCP that we still want what presumably America has always wanted, which is a peaceful resolution to the outcome. This started, this caught my attention rather, in mid-October when Oriana Schuyler Mastro wrote a piece about this. It was in the New York Times. The title of it is, This is What America is Getting Wrong About China and Taiwan. A few paragraphs in, I think if you get to the fifth paragraph, Oriana, who is a longtime respected scholar in the China space, um, writes, quote, U.S. leaders and politicians also need to keep in mind the power of reassurance, try to understand China's deep sensitivities about Taiwan, and should recommit clearly and unequivocally to the idea that only China and Taiwan can work out their political differences, a stance that remains official U.S. policy, unquote. And then as her piece continues, Oriana talks about some of the actions that the U.S. has taken that have not only not reassured China, but have made things worse. She points to two things. Number one, Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan in August 2022. And then what she calls, quote unquote, provocative legislation, specifically the Taiwan Policy Act, uh, which expressed support for Taiwan's meaningful participation in international organizations. Oriana then goes on uh, to say that this puts pressure on Xi Jinping in a way that is not stabilizing for Taiwan or for us. Quote, if he concludes that the United States has broken once and for all from its previous position on Taiwan and is bent on thwarting unification, he may feel that he must act militarily. The United States might be able to build the necessary military power in the region to deter Chinese war of choice, but the level of dominance needed to stop Mr. Xi from launching a war he sees as necessary might be impossible to achieve, unquote. And then her resolution for this is to veto, quote unquote, provocative legislation and to discourage members of Congress from visiting Taiwan. And the reason for this that she gives, and, and this is the principle behind the position that we need to reassure China. The principle is that the United States has been and should continue to be politically neutral on what happens between Taiwan and China as long as the outcome is peaceful. But this is what is so odd about about this piece and this approach to me. Uh, near the end of the piece, Oriana talks about um, what it is going to take for the United States to move in this direction to reassure China and to turn down the temperature. Uh, she says, quote, in the best case scenario, the United States and China would reach a high level agreement, a new communique in which Washington reiterates its longstanding politically, po uh, political neutrality and China commits to dialing back its military threats. This would avert war while giving China political space to work toward peaceful unification. That might mean using its clout, and this is key, 
using its clout, meaning China's clout, to isolate Taiwan and eventually convince the island's people that it should strike a deal with Beijing. But, and this is where, this is her point, it isn't Washington's place to prevent the unification of the two sides only to ensure that it doesn't happen through military force or coercion, unquote. So this is not America's policy with Taiwan, nor has it been. Uh, It's simply not. The United States is not this disinterested arbiter uh, that just wants a peaceful outcome. I mean, if you just look at how this op-ed in the New York Times defines peaceful, it means not resorting to military force, but it does include diplomatic isolation. And this is the part of a lot of the criticism of standing with Taiwan that I find so incredibly baffling. If China is trying to isolate Taiwan diplomatically, which it absolutely is and has been doing for years, picking off its allies all around the world, then why is it only symbolic when a Speaker of the House visits the president of Taiwan? Nancy Pelosi was absolutely right when she said in August of 2022 that we must not allow China to isolate Taiwan. And yet, there is this emphasis and this growing perspective among the old China guard in the United States that, hey, listen, we just don't want to fight. But if China can use means short of war to convince Taiwan to unify with the mainland, even if it's coercive, we can live with that. That is a policy position. It is not the policy position of the United States. Um, But I'm bringing this up because this is not isolated to one op-ed. I want to also highlight uh, a piece in Foreign Affairs. This was in November, November 8th, from Ryan Haas and Jude Blanchett. Uh, Ryan Haas is senior fellow uh, at the Thornton Center at Brookings, and Jude Blanchett is the Freeman Chair at Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS. They are talking about Taiwan as well, and they have a position in this piece, which is a long piece, and and there are some things in here that I agree with, but you get into the meat of the piece, quote, political stunts, undisciplined rhetoric, or indications that Washington is wavering in its resolve to uphold its security commitments are likely to lead to more anxiety, aggression, and unpredictability from Beijing. And they go on to point to Nancy Pelosi's trip to China as a mistake. And they say, U.S. actions in the Taiwan Strait should be proactive and strategic, not reactive and undermined by political theater. I am so confused and unclear as to if China is working to isolate Taiwan around the entire world, how it's political theater to stand with Taiwan publicly. That is not a stunt. Uh, That is sending a deterrent signal to Beijing that we see what they're trying to do to Taiwan and we're not going to let it happen. Simple as that. And it is not destabilizing for Washington to do that. And this is where I disagree with a lot of these scholars. Uh, Ryan and Jude say later on in the piece, uh, it is important, quote, it is important that key global and regional actors recognize that Beijing, not Washington, is the one stirring the pot. 
I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that a Speaker of the House flying and landing and meeting with politicians, holding a press conference and then coming back home, or a Speaker of the House meeting with Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen in California, hosting a bipartisan press conference, going back to Washington after, is not stirring the pot. What is stirring the pot is military incursions by sea and by air and training to invade a neighbor. What is stirring the pot is isolating a people, isolating Taiwan, isolating the government of Taiwan. Um, this is not complicated. It is not unclear who is responsible for destabilization. Why is it incumbent on Washington to reassure Beijing when it's very clear who the aggressor is in this case? And this takes me to a final piece. Uh, this is from Bonnie Glazer, Jessica Chen Weiss, and Tom Christensen. This was late November, November 30th, also in Foreign Affairs. Bonnie Glazer, a longtime China expert, Taiwan policy hand. She's at the German Marshall Fund, managing director there. Jessica Chen Weiss uh, is at Cornell University. And Tom Christensen, longtime international uh, relations scholar. He's at Columbia. They have a piece, Taiwan and the True Sources of Deterrence, and their perspective yet again is about reassuring China. They talk about how Washington has not made any effort to encourage the resumption of a cross-strait dialogue between Beijing and Taipei. Uh, they say, quote, even though Beijing is responsible for the breakdown of cross-strait dialogue, the failure of the United States to encourage a return to talks has been interpreted by Beijing as further evidence that Washington does not want the two sides of the strait to settle their disputes, unquote. Um, the United States wants peace in the Taiwan Strait. The whole world wants peace in the Taiwan Strait. That's not the issue. The, the question is, what kind of peace do we want? And what is the path to that peace? The peace that the United States wants is not the same peace that China wants. And the peace that Taiwan wants has not and is still not the same of the one that the People's Republic of China wants. And yet, they have, I think, a, an unreasonable optimism that a peaceful settlement of reunification or of unification is something that we should hold out for. And, and I, I say that in reference to this quote from the piece. China would have to persuade Taiwan's public of the merits of some form of peaceful integration, a hard sell, but not impossible, given China's economic clout and the possibility that a more attractive government may someday emerge in Beijing, unquote. Okay. The Chinese Communist Party is in its, what, seventh year of an ongoing genocide, primarily against Uyghurs in Xinjiang. They have completely derailed one country, two systems in Hong Kong. 
in what universe could they persuade the people of Taiwan that it would be in their interest to join the PRC? I understand that maybe one day a peaceful government could emerge in China. We certainly hope so. Um, that is not the reality today. This reminds me of a similar piece that Oriana Schuyler Mastro wrote in her New York Times guest essay. She's basically the same thing, quote, if a pathway remains for China to eventually convince Taiwan's people through inducements or pressure that it is in their interest to peacefully unify, then that may be a China that we can live with, unquote. We meaning the United States. Um, that is a blank check for China to do everything it can short of war to unify Taiwan with the PRC and sending a signal that America wouldn't do a thing to stop it. The piece from Bonnie, Jessica, and Tom, I don't think is that far out, but it's also not that far away from that position. In the sense of holding out for the possibility that it's unlikely, but you know we should still try to encourage it. That is not America's position on Taiwan. Maybe it has been since the Clinton administration, maybe it has been since the Bush administration, in part, not in whole, because uh, certainly under Clinton and Bush, engagement really took hold and our Taiwan policy began to shift noticeably. But it is not true that we have always been this politically neutral arbiter. I've been spending some time reading a really fascinating compendium on the Taiwan Relations Act. It's uh, it was published in 1989 by folks who were involved in the drafting and uh, voting of the legislation itself. Uh, it was edited. It's, it's a volume edited by William Bader and Jeffrey Bergner. Uh, William Bader was the staff director of the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee during the time of uh, the TRA and the recognition of Taiwan under the Carter administration. Jeffrey Bergner at the time was uh, chief of staff on the Committee of Foreign Relations in the Senate, and he was an aide for Senator Dick Lugar from Indiana. And I've been spending some time reading through this compendium that has uh, analysis from members of Congress who voted on the bill at the time, from people who wrote the text of the legislation itself. And I just want to share some short excerpts from bipartisan members of Congress who talked about the TRA, not, you know, how many decades passed now, but right in the moment when it passed. Uh, this is an excerpt from the book here. Quote, the intent of Congress was clear enough. Though President Carter was able to change the form of the relationship with Taiwan, Congress was opposed to any change in its substance. In Senator Alan Cranston's words, U.S. relations with Taiwan would occur through, quote, unofficial but no less substantive means, unquote. Perhaps the clearest statement in the entire debate came from then-Congressman Chris Dodd, quote, U.S. laws and programs will continue to apply to Taiwan as if derecognition had not taken place, unquote. And then Senator John Glenn said in 1982, quote, 
For me, that was what the Taiwan Relations Act was all about. Despite derecognition, we were pledging to the people of Taiwan that the American people would do what they could to ensure that the island's people had a free choice. Notice the emphasis of this was not on ensuring that China had a pathway to reunification or to unification. The emphasis was always on our relationship with Taiwan. Uh, that was partly because of suspicions of the Chinese Communist Party. It was partly because of the ending of the Vietnam War and concerns of the appearance of walking away from a U.S. ally, abandoning Taiwan and wanting to make sure that we sent a message of standing with our allies. Um, it was also a recognition of the friendship between the American people and the Taiwanese people. And... Um, you will not hear anywhere in the people who drafted and voted on the Taiwan Relations Act this sense that America is this disinterested referee that just wants a peaceful outcome here. America is a sovereign state with its interests. And, and this is something I think I'm going to spend some more time on uh, because when Xi Jinping met with Biden uh, at the APEC summit in San Francisco in November, Xi Jinping was very clear. He said, peaceful unification is all well and good, but we can't let this go indefinitely. It's not the first time he said it, but he said it at a time when the administration was really trying to emphasize the cooperative elements of the relationship. Um, so I, I think that we are on the verge of making some big mistakes on Taiwan. Uh, to say nothing of the backlog of our foreign military sales, which is a whole separate conversation. And just to be abundantly clear, listen, no personal beef whatsoever with any of these scholars. Uh, followed their work for a good deal of time. I disagree with them on this issue and, and disagree with them on others too. Um, and I think it's important to talk about those policy disagreements publicly. I think this is one of the not just great things about the First Amendment, but I mean, even more specifically than that, public policy discussions centered around disagreements are how we move policy forward. And this is, uh, I hope it's abundantly clear, got nothing personal against any of these scholars, authors whatsoever. Um, my desire is to highlight the area of substantive disagreement and shine some light on it and hopefully spark a good conversation. But I want to spend a little bit of time now ending on TikTok. Uh, different topic, very similar theme to these other issues. The United States has not banned TikTok. One of, if not the most popular social media app still, 150 million Americans on it. And the failure of Washington to do anything about what is, by all accounts, a Trojan horse for the Chinese Communist Party from a spying perspective, from a disinformation perspective, Washington's collective failure to ban this app is a huge red flag that there's something wrong with our China policy. And I've been spending a lot of time thinking about this because if you rewind back to March, there was this 
palpable sense that we were on the verge of doing something about TikTok. There was uh, the lead up to the CEO's testimony on Capitol Hill, Sho Chu. It was it was a mixed hearing. Uh, I think in some way both TikTok and opponents of TikTok got what they needed out of the hearing. If you were a Gen Zer on TikTok, all you saw were members of Congress, clips of members of Congress falling over themselves and not knowing how to talk about a tech issue well. But if you watched the whole hearing, and if you were familiar with the security threats that TikTok poses, you heard very educated questions by well-informed, concerned members of Congress, and TikTok did nothing to alleviate those concerns. Uh, if anything, you had members of Congress as the year went on expressing concern that Shochu misled members of Congress during his testimony. There was this palpable sense that there was enough concern from Republicans and from Democrats that perhaps Washington would move to do something about this. And then TikTok uh, put together what is by all accounts uh, a very impressive lobbying campaign to protect itself and to insulate itself. And they targeted both the left and the right. And at least up until now, it's worked. The energy to do anything about TikTok is gone, uh, or at least it's lying dormant, not just because uh, it's an ele- going into an election year when particularly the Democratic Party will benefit from turn out the vote efforts from Gen Zers who are on TikTok, uh, but it goes beyond that. I I spent some time comparing what I call the most disappointing chapter of America's China policy in 2023, which is the failure to ban TikTok. I've spent some time comparing that with the biggest, most substantive China policy win that Washington has got in recent years, and that was the December 2021 Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. Um, I think one of the reasons a lot of, if you want to call China hawks, I'm, I'm, I think the Chinese Communist Party is a threat. I think we're in a Cold War with them. So if that makes me a hawk, happy to be called a hawk. Um, I think one of the reasons a lot of people who were concerned about TikTok were so optimistic initially about a ban was because we are coming off the heels of a huge policy victory with the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act or the UFLPA. And after the energy just completely deflated with TikTok, I started thinking through what are the differences in these two cases? And I've, I've been thinking a lot about what's necessary for big policy change to occur in DC. And I, I tweeted about this a few days ago. I'm not going to go through all of these indicators. I have like 12 that I have broken down into three different categories, policy, politics, and procedure. I'll link to this in the show notes, and I'm definitely going to be writing about this more because I think it's important. But um, with TikTok, you have a high constituent impact with over 150 million U.S. users on this. No policy consensus about uh, universal support for a ban, strong industry interests uh, opposing a ban. You have generally supportive public opinion, but that started to taper off over the past couple of months. You have some very influential donors uh, 
who are donors to key members of Congress on key committees that are opposed to banning TikTok. You have bipartisan support for banning the app, but you also have bipartisan opposition to banning it. Um, the more time goes on since Shochu's testimony, the harder it becomes to do anything about banning TikTok. Not impossible, but it gets harder. Uh, you have a disagreement between Congress and the White House over how to ban TikTok. Forget whether we should. Uh, you have many congressional champions who want to ban it, but there's no consolidation over how to do it. There's no common vehicle. And commitment from congressional leadership on this issue is mixed. Um, those are only a few indicators right there. There are so many more that I'm sure if I thought about more, I could move into it. But um, that's not the picture of an issue on the cusp of policy change. It's just not. Uh, and that, again, that doesn't even say anything about going into an election year. Uh, the evidence for the threat TikTok poses is overwhelming, but those issues uh, remain. I mean, it's not enough to be right. You have to have these other realities aligned for things to really shift and change meaningfully in our system, and we're not there right now. And this is why I keep on coming back to this story over and over again that China policy in the United States has not shifted like a lot of people say it has. It's one thing to say that TikTok is a problem. It's another to do something about it. We have not done anything about it yet. If you have TikTok uh, that is donating to campaigns, um, and if you have venture capitalists who invest in TikTok and they are donors to members of Congress, and like not just you know, beans like not just like penny donors, but big money do donors, money talks. Uh, rightly or wrongly, money talks. And um, we are not at the place where it is a publicly painful political position to be against protecting the American people from a Trojan horse of our greatest adversary. We should be, but we're not. And getting to that point of change is going to take more time. And it's going to be hard. And I think this is the message which might sound pessimistic, and it, it feels pessimistic, but I, I think it's realistic. Getting into the posture of winning, not just great power competition, but winning a Cold War is not easy because it requires sacrifice. This isn't the 1990s anymore. We are not living in a unipolar moment where we have the luxury to think about issues like responsibility to protect or to try to remake the world and our image through foreign assistance and irresponsible foreign policy that led to some decisions we never should have made. Um, the world is getting more dangerous right now. And our politics and our rank order of what matters most does not reflect that reality yet. And this is all end on this note. The conclusion to my forthcoming book, Countering China's Great Game, is all about this point. Uh, it, it's going to come out in April, April 15th, um, thanks to Naval Institute Press for publishing it. Really excited for it. But it is 
it's simultaneously pessimistic and concerning, but um, I think what makes it so frustrating is there are things that we can do, we being the United States, to win this Cold War and to win it peacefully. We can outcompete the Chinese Communist Party. It's not too late. We can delay and complicate their timeline to go after Taiwan. We can still do that. But it's going to require us to get into a competitive footing where we are competing to win. And that's not where we are. So as much of a downer as that sounds, it's important to be realistic and honest about the state of China policy and to not buy into myths and to not buy into a narrative that's only half true. And I think the sooner we are honest about some of the shortfalls that we continue to grapple with and some of the failures that we have on our balance sheet after 2023, the better position we're going to be in 2024 and in 2025. So uh, thanks for listening. Really appreciate you guys, truly. Uh, It means a lot. Uh, For those of you who listen on Spotify, which I know the vast majority of you are on Apple Podcasts, but... If you tune in on Spotify, there is uh, a way that you can submit feedback directly to me, uh, which I, I'd love to get from you guys. Or I, I know this is, uh, is said in the outro every single episode. If you want to reach out and talk or just share feedback or let me know what you think about any of these episodes, uh, please do email me, greatpowerpod at afpc.org. Uh, Thank you for tuning in. Looking forward to formally relaunching the show with some great guests in the new year. And until then, enjoy the rest of 2023, and we'll be back to continue the Great Power Competition beat on the other side of January 1st. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a rating or review. To learn more about AFPC's research, visit us online at afpc.org. For questions or comments, you can reach me at greatpowerpod at afpc.org. I'm Michael Sobolik, and you've been listening to Great Power Podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time.